Välsung med kamrader. Tode Kuleos bekiffikboklor. Kuleos bekiffik. Oh, there's a horse. We're in a very nice spot. We're in um, we're on the southern edge of Hyde Park, near Embassy Land in Knightsbridge. Yeah, surrounded by armed police. Surrounded by. I've been shouted at by a um, a man on a bike. Yeah. So the feeling of the uh, weight of the state and a certain amount yeah. of paranoia and Absolutely. anger and suppressed anger is perfect for the book we're perfect, discussing. Perfect setting. What's the book, Tim? What book are we discussing? <laughs> we're discussing the Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. Written in 1907, not set in 1907. Well, no. As this is where you, st- I don't trust Wikipedia. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a good start for any uh, podcast. <laughs> you look it up, and twice on the Wikipedia page about the secret agent, it says assertively set in 1886. Yeah, but there's a reason why it says that. Why does why? What's that reason? Are we, go, are we doing this now? No, we'll do it later. Do then. it later, okay? Because I'm go, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot you down in flames. Okay. Well, we'll talk about we'll talk. Well, I'll talk <laughs> in about in the spirit of the secret agent. I'm gonna blow you up. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll talk. I'll talk about the received wisdom of the dating of the secret agent, and you can talk about the Tim Wright. Why everybody's I'm gonna wrong put a bomb under wisdom. it. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna blow it to pieces, and they're gonna be picking me up with a shovel, as they, as they do in the book. So we should say that the book is about it's about a, a bombing in um, Greenwich Park mm. in year to be discussed well, but it's based on an actual bombing in Greenwich Park in 1894 1894 uh, where the accidental death of Martial Baudin yeah he's an interesting character yeah. who was fatally injured while carrying a bomb across Greenwich Park oh my god yeah that's right the subject was suggested by Ford Maddox Ford right correct in uh, 1906 in a conversation yep and Conrad wrote we recalled the already old story of the attempt to blow up the Greenwich Observatory a blood stained inanity of so fatuous a kind that it was impossible to fathom its origin by any reasonable or even unreasonable process of thought. That's a very good Conrad sentence. Mm. Oh, that fellow was half an idiot. His sister committed suicide afterwards, Ford Maddox Ford apparently said. And that inspired... That, that was it. He, that was enough to get him, get him going. But it's also, it's also a novel about London at a particular yeah. time, yeah. which is kind of why it makes it interesting for location work. We're going to go to where we think... Mr. Verloc's shop. Was. So, brief summary. Yeah. The protagonist is Verloc. Mr. Verloc. He runs a pawn shop. P O R N. Or a seditious bookshop. Well, seditious on every level. Yes. It's lots of books and brown envelopes. And, and yeah, his dirty, customers are dirty all men. Books. Customers are all men. Yeah. And there's a back bit of the shop and a front bit of the shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did um, you get the picture of this now? Yeah. Standing on Little Compton Street. You found it, and it's so good. So that's sort of, what do you think, uh, 12 feet down, yeah. under a grill in the middle of Charing Cross Road? So we're outside, we're at the end of Old Compton Street. So Old just, Compton Street. I just spun around away from yeah, the Yeah, that didn't help. Like we're at the end of Old Compton Street, where it meets Charing Cross Road, standing on the traffic island, everyone's looking at us strangely, and we're outside Macquarie's Music and Instruments, who spent quite a lot of time in there. Or the Compton Cross Pub. 
just down the road from Foyle's Bookshop. Foyle's Bookshop. And didn't that used to be the old... Um, That's the Marquee. The Marquee. The Marquee, the Montague Pike now, yeah. Yeah. And uh, by the Foyle's Bookshop, and about 12 feet, 15 feet down, there's a street. So this, this Charing Cross Road runs over and this built the old over street. the old streets. So that's Verloc's territory. Down there. Down there. 12 feet down. Yeah. Nice. The shop was small and so was the house. It was one of those grimy brick houses which existed in large quantities before the era, era of reconstruction dawned upon London. In the daytime, the door remained closed. In the evening, it stood discreetly but suspiciously ajar. So, uh, the location of this shop. So, describes a triangular square. Tri- another triangular square. It's got a lot of triangular squares. Yes. So it's it's basically talks it, about it being in Soho, yeah. his house. But we are fairly clear from well, from Hugh Walpole in 1919 yeah. said that he had spoken to Conrad about this book, and Conrad had told him that uh, Brett Street, which is the street given. Uh, in the book, yeah, it was Green Street, okay, and now Green Street is now Irving Street, WC2, which is on the so back south east edge of Leicester Square. Yeah, so it comes out. It's a pedestrian street with lots of restaurants on it. We're standing at the end of it now, which is why it's so noisy because that's Charing Cross Road behind us. Yeah, um, we're at the back of the National Portrait Gallery, which was, I think, the old Town Hall, was it, or something? Maybe I don't you've know. got a map there. I've you? got a map here that shows a Town Hall. Uh, and a barracks alongside the uh, the National Gallery. Now, the, the thing to remember is is that uh, Conrad alludes to the reconstruction. It's what's known as the Western Improvement. Right. Which is where... So all the, you, all the stuff you see on the Charing Cross Road and uh, the back of Trafalgar Square and Leicester Square is all stuff that was built at the end of the 19th century and the, the beginning of the 20th. Right, so he's writing it in 1907 yeah. about, we think, something that happened in the 1890s. Or and, 1880s. That's ex- and that's exactly the period where this is basically it's been gone. up. It's it, been and there's off. a reference in the book to, to how to, to shops being left empty because they're about to be knocked down mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. replaced. So he's, he's describing a, a, a place that doesn't even exist in 1907 anymore. It's even more distant now, obviously. Right. But that makes it, I suppose that makes it even more weird and mysterious, this kind of vanished world that he's describing. Yeah. Um, and now this, this the, tri- the triangle is still here, because you've got this weird... Okay, it says here, Brett Street was not very far away, he's talking about. Yeah. It branched off narrow from the side of an open triangular space yeah. surrounded by dark and mysterious houses, temples of petty commerce emptied of traders for the night only a fruiterer's stall at the corner made a violent blaze of light and colour, beyond all was black and the few people passing in that direction vanished at one stride beyond the glowing heaps of oranges and lemons well ironically I think that that might now be Steak and Company (laughs) the The oranges and lemons have gone on the corner, the oranges and lemons have gone so in terms of when the book is set, the received wisdom is there's no dates in the book. There's one date given in the book. Yeah. And it's a very clear date. There's a few references to the fact that Winnie and Mr. Verloc have been married for seven years. Okay. There are several references to that. Yes. Uh, and, and at the scene of her suicide on the boat, yes. a ring is found left lying on the seat where she was sitting. And on the ring, there is an engraving that says, 
24th of June, 1879. There's the date. So the suggestion, obviously, is that this is her wedding ring. Yes. And that's the date she got married, 24th of June, 1879. People have said, okay, they're married for seven years. This book is happening in... It's described as the spring in the book, with several references to being the spring. So May, perhaps June, 1886. That's your I put it to you. Okay, you're saying that, are you? Well, I'm not just saying that. You're saying that, are The you? entire English literary canon is saying that. You've got, <laughs> you are now about to take on the common wisdom of almost 100 years of analysis of this book. Okay. Well, I'm going to take... The stage you. is yours. <laughs> so there's also Inspector Heat. It's Chief Inspector Heat, yes. Who's investigating this, and he also runs a network of informers. Yes. And doesn't tell his boss, the assistant commissioner. When he has to go and report to his boss about the, the bombing, he says, I saw him for the first time in my life a little more than seven years ago. Right. When two Imperial Highnesses and the Imperial Chancellor were on a visit here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Good. Liking it so far. So when would there have been two Imperial Highnesses and an Imperial Chancellor in London? Okay. That's You're the, going to tell me. Well, so basically, very easy... So seven years. So this would be, yeah. as I said, they, they've been married for seven years. So this would be around the same time okay. we got married. So the Imperial Highnesses, I think that's a no-brainer. I think that is basically the Imperial Highness of Russia is Dagmar, who's the daughter of the King of Denmark. Yeah. And she's also the sister of the Prince of Wales, Edward VII's wife. Yeah. And she regularly came to London. She was crowned in 1883. So she's not an Imperial Highness until 1883. Mm, okay. okay. So we have to bear that in mind. And she, But she regularly came to London. They also holidayed in Denmark together all the time. Okay. So, so that's probably... Um, it's post-1883. It has right. to be. Okay. Then we talk about the Imperial Chancellor. Yeah. There is only one Imperial Chancellor, and that is Bismarck. Yeah. Bismarck is made Chancellor in 1871. Yeah. Uh, I found this fantastic website for, about pools, the old the traditional tailors. Oh, yeah. And that any, every time some great potentate came to London, they, uh, they would get measured at pools for when, you know, so that if they needed to get a suit in London, they'd always be able to get it. So they have a record of Bismarck's first visit to the pools was in 1876 to get measured. (laughs) This is good, huh? Very good. So, but actually, what I really love is that I found, and my phone might make a funny noise as I look this up, but I found a website. I've just seen the number of unread emails on your phone screen, by the way. That fills, fills me with absolute horror. No, that's my old mail reader. I don't use that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> is this why you never replied to any of my emails? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, email is an old old technology. You don't, <laughs> don't need to worry about that. Now, look, if I then put into my browser Bismarck's Bench. Oh, yeah. Do you know about Bismarck's Bench? I don't know anything about Bismarck's Bench. This is a good little story, this. Bismarck's bench. This is on cabbyblog.com, a cabbie, a London cabbie who blogs. It says that in 1885, as Germany's Chancellor, he came to England on a state visit. And having expressed an interest in English ale, he was taken to the now forgotten Barclay Brewery in Southwark. Naturally, at the end of the tour, eager to prove English beer was the equal of German variety, he was asked if he would like to partake of a drop of the company's strongest brew. A delighted Bismarck was given a half flagon full of their finest. Etiquette demanded that the visitor would take just a sip and hand the flagon back. 
Somehow the courtesy was lost in translation and Bismarck emptied the half flagon. How much is a flagon? It's quite a lot, I think. The manager, probably to hide his embarrassment, commentated to the Chancellor that very few men had ever drunk two half-gallon tankards. Half-gallon? In true Germanic tradition... Bismarck proved them wrong by insisting on a refill and proceeded to damn the second. So he drank eight pints of beer <laughs> in one session. After leaving the brewery, his carriage passed over Westminster Bridge when one of Europe's most powerful men ordered his vehicle to stop, alighted and promptly lurched towards a bench. Giving instructions to be woken in an hour, <laughs> he fell into a deep sleep as senior members of the Foreign Office waited patiently for the slumbering Chancellor to awake. Okay. Alas, the bench opposite Boudicca's statue, as it ah. was, has been removed and lost. But it says that Scottish brewers Brewdog have risen to the occasion, Adam, by producing a 41% beer called Sink the Bismarck. 41%? That's what it's saying. Blimey. I would like to see the current Chancellor not that back. Right, so, good story, huh? I'm going to have to re- rethink my view on Bismarck. Right. So that was 1885. Dagmar would have been in town too. So, I'm saying 1885 plus 7. He said just over seven years ago. 1892. Which puts it only two years away from 1894, which is when the actual bombing happened. Yes. Problem. There are several problems. Burlock's discussion with the Russian guy, he makes reference to the idea that he needs to have this atrocity to happen. And the reason is that there's a conference taking place between the great powers in Milan in order uh, to discuss what to do about troublemakers yeah. to have a united policy about yeah. sorting them out right? at which the British have been dragging their feet and when was that conference? I give you a month the sittings of the conference are suspended before it reassembles again something must have happened here or your connection with us ceases Third you know of course of the international conference assembled in Milan yes so it's assembled in Milan and I'm afraid that happened in 1898 Okay, so it's all over the place, and, and there's also the problem of the ring. Yes, so so we've got three dates now. It could be 1892, it could be 1886, yeah, or 1898. He's all over the place. He's curiously unspecific. He's curiously um, specific with the actual Greenwich bombing happening in 1894. <laughs> Very early on in this book, Verloc is called to the, what is obviously, very obviously, the Russian embassy. It's never stated that it's the Russian embassy, no, but we are clearly supposed clear to think it is, is the Russian embassy. To uh, be told that if he doesn't do something outrageous, active, he's not going to get paid anymore. So uh, to get here, Verloc walks. Well, we think he walks from Soho across the top of Leicester Square, down Piccadilly, across High Park Corner. And then it's very explicit. Before reaching Knightsbridge, Mr. Verloc took a turn to the left out of the busy main thoroughfare. Yeah. Then okay. he walks down that road and then he turns left again. The polished knockers of the doors gleamed as far as the eye could reach. The clean windows shone with a dark, opaque luster and all was still. Now, interestingly, we think that is Lounge Square that he walked yes. down. And interestingly, most of it's obviously been blown up. 
Yeah, because it's not there. It's mostly fifties and sixties apartment blocks. And also, there's just traffic everywhere. Traffic everywhere. It's so noisy. But it's a very straight road. It's not and we, quiet. And it is obviously round a square, so it would have been a very grand. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Absolutely. Georgian Victorian terrace. Yeah, and um, it does get quite posh when you get down to Chesham Square, which we says with a turn to the left, Mister Verloc. Or Verloc, Verloc, Verloc. I've been saying Verloc. Pursu- but you know yeah, I mispronounce everything. <laughs> pursued his way along a narrow street by the side of a yellow wall, which, for some inscrutable reason, had number one Chesham Square written on it in black letters. Chesham Square was at least sixty yards away, and Mister Verloc, cosmopolitan enough not to be deceived by London's topographical mysteries, held on steadily without a sign of surprise or indignation. At last, with business-like persistency, he reached the square and made diagonally for the number ten. So we've done. We've been wandering around there, looking at house numbers. Well, there is and no Chesham Square, first of all. No, it's Chesham che- Place. Chesham Place. And Correct. we've gone round. We've got, and it is a tri. It's very, very confusing because it's a triangular square. Yeah. Only in London could such a concept exist. And then the road, the numbers kind of go off the square in lines towards the. It's quite confusing. It's really isn't it? confusing. Yeah. But it is interesting because number one, Chesham place is is the german embassy now big massive german big, big massive embassy. 70s building yes that's it's right it's not quite as ugly as the british embassy in berlin right which is the ugliest building in europe <laughs> um but that's the embassy that used to be on chesham yeah on that port corner was the russian embassy excellent right and excellent. that was chesham house excellent and it was there from 1853 to 1927 Okay. When they formed the USSR and the British kicked them out. Did they? Yeah, for two years. Broke diplomatic relations. And oh, they weren't allowed back till 1929 when they moved into their new gaff down in Kensington. So that was ten years after the revolution? Yeah. Interesting, Interesting. isn't it? No, so Chesham, Chesham House was where, where the Russian plotting took place. This belonged to an imposing carriage gate and a high, clean wall between two houses, of which one rationally enough bore the number nine, and the other was number 37. But the fact that this belonged to Port Hill Street... Claimed by an inscription. Now, there's no such plaque and there's no such street as Port Hill Street, no, but there is a Pont Street, yeah, which is nearby. And the and the description of the carriage gate is very much like the the back of Chesham House. I will on the website curiouslyspecific.com. I found a picture, an the old lithograph. Good marketing. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. A lithograph of the Russian ambassador in something like 1857 or something, uh, leaving the embassy in his carriage okay. and it has a picture of that arch in the drawer okay. so you, you've got, we've got a record of what it looked like so why is, Ver, why is Verloc working for the Russians Tim? Why, what, were the, what were the Russians up to in the 1880s that was uh, uh, well, Conrad a Polish person uh, yes. forget, to be making the Russians the bad guys yeah well of course because there are absolutely no there's no correlation between today is there there's no sense that today the Russians might be up to bad things in the UK. What, trying to, to po- uh, no, not poison, yeah. uh, uh, create an incident that scares the nation. There's no overlap between the 1880s and the 2018s <laughs> at all. But Put your that, shirt on, sir. Anyway, the... Well, the Russians were the most worried, uh, not surprisingly, the Russians were most worried about people throwing bombs at them, the Russian aristocracy, because in 1880... They had managed to kill Alexander II yeah. in a very gruesome way. Yeah, yeah. To pick him up with a shovel as well. Really, there's a quite lurid description, which I, I haven't got on me, sadly, of the fact that he also then, then took a, quite a long time to die oh, uh, in front of his family. Oof. So they moved him to the Winter Palace, and, he'd, and, he's, and, he, and he, basically his sort of guts was 
sprawled out, his foot had blown off, half his face, and he's, this, he managed to this live... This podcast contains <laughs> abusive <laughs> language and violence. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask what is it. Let us go and make our visit. Okay. What were you saying about being more professional and sort of like up in the quality? What did you so, say? This is the second attempt at the Cecil Court recording because I didn't record the first one. Very sorry. We're in. We're standing in Cecil Court. Cecil Court. You were looking at the fancy bookshop yeah, with John yeah. Fowles and Arthur yeah, yeah, so they've got a lovely first. first and I editions. was looking at the one that says "fuck, hate, sex, a go go." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the kind of place we're in. So Cecil Court, if anyone knows, it runs between St Martin's Lane and Charing Cross Road. Yeah. Um, it's a pedestrianised street. It's very beautiful. Bookshops down both sides. It's always always been a book place ever since I've lived in London, but it's been a book place for long, longer than that, hasn't it, Tim? Well, it has a history. Yeah, there's basically they started talking about seditious literature being published here with the Jacobites in the early 1700s. Mm. So it's all been a place they, of troublemakers. They like, they like blowing things up. Yeah, troublemakers. Yeah, but it really got going then when they redeveloped this, as you saw the, where. Well, if you stand here now, it's a very obviously Edwardian, right? Yes. So it's part of the rebuilt of the, Charing Cross it was Road. Part of the Western Improvement. So we've been standing on a grill at the end of Old Compton Street and Charing Cross Road, where you can look down and see an old street underneath, twelve feet down, which is Little Compton Street. So this whole area was built on top of yeah. where Verloc lived. Right. Um, and, and then when they developed this, the the basically the book pump the book shops moved in. Okay. Yeah. And they moved in in 1907, between sort of like, sort of 1900 and 1907, I think, yeah. around that period. Yeah. Because they'd all been, because they used to be down in the Aldwych, and that got crumped over, so they came up here and took so, over this So place. when they built Bush House and all those places, they moved this they, way. Up this way. And then they moved, and now... And, and then, then they, they got moved off Leicester Square when that got redeveloped, and, and then they moved to Soho. And now they're being moved out of Soho because of the... Because the internet's taken all the porn. But, so the history of this is very interesting. But it wasn't just sleazy, it wasn't just sleazy girly books, was it? It was... Oh, no. It was no. much more than that. No, this is, the, this is actually the sort of birth of uh, modernism here. Yeah. Um, Sam Because um, T.S. Eliot lived here. Yeah. Uh, and when Madame Blavatsky was Ali- Alistair Crowley Alistair Crowley used to get his occult books from Watkins which is still there Watkins started in about 1907 we're roughly the same time Watkins. as Conrad's writing this book yeah. that occult book shop start kicks off there and at number 66 Charing Cross Road uh, just around, around the corner, corner Henderson's what so a fantastic place so Henderson's better known as the bomb shop Gooder. Yeah. So a bookshop on 66 Charing Cross Road run by Mr. Henderson. Yeah. Uh, selling both radical left and anarchist writing and modernist literature. He had a fantastic sort of credo for what kind of books yeah. he might stock there. Yeah. Uh, it's now shut down. It was selling Chinese medicine. Chinese wasn't it? medicine, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been redeveloped as a he commercial said, um, uh, venue. He said the books he stocks, that they must be rebel. Rebel a thousand years ago, rebel yesterday, rebel since lunch. Not yet rebel at all, but likely to be rebel next week. Rebel in politics, rebel in sex, rebel in religion. 
anything, anyhow, or anywhere rebel. Anything smelling or tasting of rebel. Okay. So he's just around the corner. 1907, 1909, he opens up. Exactly when Conrad's writing this book. And so you're saying that the, the porn slash seditious slash dodgy books yeah. industry had been... We're going down there. I'll show the you where it was. Witch, which is east of Basically, here. Basically, they, they built Bush House moved. over the top of it. So they built Bush They've House been over channeling the filthy books ever since. And then they came here and they <laughs> built Cherry Cross Road at the top of yeah. it. Yeah. And then they went to Leicester Square and they built Leicester Square. Got rid of Verloc's shop. And then they went to Soho. Yeah. So they've been moving so west all the time. Yeah. So the now, porn is moving west. So where they, where's it ended up now? On the internet. On the internet. So what are we looking at? Well, we're standing at number 395, The Strand. Yeah. Opposite the uh, Savoy bit, no, opposite 80 The Strand, um, for the Vaudeville Theatre. And this was the, I'm trying to find the exact name of it, this was the first lager German beer hall in London. Ah, well, you, you wouldn't tell me that over a beer. It was later called Darmstädters, and I'm going to contend that Darmstädters was the model for Sinus. Ah, okay. Now you can get a pure wax. You can get yeah, a Brazilian yeah. for 32 quid. And London gifts. Yeah. That's the building, isn't it? Yeah. Should we go to the coal hall? Come on. The underground hall. Well, we're in the coal underground drinking hall. Yeah. Now, a lot of people think it's probably going to be based on the uh, club that was raided by the Metropolitan Club Police, Autonomy. Which was on Charing Cross Road. After the Greenwich incident. Yeah. yeah. No, no, Tottenham Road. Road. Tottenham Road, further north. Windmill Street, where I used to get my hair cut, weirdly. Really? Yes. Um, at the anarchist hairdressers. But um, I, I was reading an interesting little uh, e-book called Gambrinus Waltz. Okay. Which is about the introduction of lager to London in the 19th century. You can get anything you like on the internet, you can't you? Anything you like. It's very interesting, actually. And it, it's in 1869, the Strand, stretching in a straight line from Charing Cross to Temple Bar, was a rowdy, colourful place. The Lowther Arcade, famous for its toy shops and the mecca for children's at the western end, but its eastern end was notorious for hardcore drinking dens, pornographic bookshops and other vices. Oh. So that's your project. Between 10 and midnight every night, the theatres on the Strand would disgorge wealthy young men called mashers, fired up by the sight of pretty singers, dancers and actresses who would probably find themselves propositioned by street walkers, offered racy postcards and invited to visit nearby brothels. So and what year is this? 1869. Right, okay. So just a little bit before which is the, the year time, time we're talking about. In 1869, number 395, we've just been to visit it, was the lease on it was acquired by um, an Austrian called Joseph Gespandl, and a Hungarian businessman called Adolphus Videki. And in 1869, they opened the Vienna Beer Saloon. Friedrich Engels was a frequent... Ah, oh, uh, now you're talking. ...a frequent uh, uh, habitué of the right. uh, Vienna Beer Saloon. Friedrich Engels mentioned it in a letter to his mother in 1871. This evening I put aside a special pleasure for myself. Despite the rain, I am going to the Viennese Beer Hall in the Strand, where for once I shall be able to drink my fill. Oh, he's right. a beer monster. So Engels kind of, the beer kind of monster. <laughs> and, and, and after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, London was flooded of with German army officers on leave. Oh and though God. they tried British stout out of curiosity, it was reported they made it their real mission to drink Vienna beer. So that's where Bismarck should have gone. So Videcki extricated himself from the business in 1872, and in 1879, Gaspandl stepped out of the picture, handing the saloon on to Adolphus Bernders. Bernders died in 1880. 
and then it was sold in 1880 to the man who becomes most closely associated with Stalin, James Darmy Darmstetter. So it was called Darmstetters in the 1880s. Okay. Um, Darmstetter. The saloon yeah. ceased to be a little piece of Vienna and became a more generically German lager bar and grill room known universally as Darmstetters or Darmies. Okay. So these guys are basically saying, they say the saloon is, is basically Darmstetters. Who says that? The authors of this ebook. I'm, I'm liking it. I'm liking it. This ties in with where, where, the, where the porn yeah, was happening yeah. before it moved to Leicester Square. Yeah. Um, so I found this really great article by Dr. Matthew Green called The Street Where London's Victorians Bought Their Porn. If, if you think of the Victorians as prudish, go to Holywell Street in the 1880s, variously damned as a place where dirt and darkness meet and make mortal compact oh, nice. by the times oh, no, and then described by the times as the vilest street in the civilised world Blimey. this was the illicit pornography hub of Victorian London picture of it Holywell Street okay. so where is so it? it's literally at the end of this street here you find around 20 shops posing as standard booksellers but in fact peddling salacious material. This is Verloc's shop, yeah. right? That totally undermines conventional ideas about Victorian sexuality, right? Yeah. Don't be alarmed. So the first pornographic bibliography in the English language details the kinds of illegal pornography available in Holywell Street in the 1870s and 80s. So uh, 1884, Randiana being the experience... <laughs> Being the experiences of an erotic philosopher, Randiana. Randiana. So that's quite good, isn't it? And then there's a uh, there's also for your delectation, uh, Gay Girls of New York, Kate Handcock, The Lustful Turk, and The Story of a Dildo. <laughs> Obscenely illustrated. This is good, isn't it? Very good. So uh, you could also go upstairs and get stereoscopic slides. <laughs> Ding dong. Stereoscopic slides. Ding dong. This is the internet porn of the year. So no, so this is the thing. In the end, the only way to suppress this foul sink of iniquity was to wipe it off the map. After 1901, you'll find Hollywell Street flattened to make way for the Aldwych development. So the only trace of it is a statue of Gladstone in front of St Clement Danes, and he's staring right down the Where exterminated street. street. Oh. Now, in my, now, as we've been talking, I'm kind of interested in this now, because then that makes sense. Yeah. What it means is, if it really is taking place, this story, in the 1880s, 1890s, yeah. Verloc would have his shop in Holywell Street. Yeah. He wouldn't have it in Leicester Square. No. Um, but because this book is written in 1907, yeah. he's now situated it up in Cecil Court and Leicester Square where as being is the now. where the porn is now. So it's an anachronism. It's not correct. There's Bush House. We're looking for Gladstone. So is he at the, is he this end? Looking down the road. So, so this again was was built on top of sleeves. This was yeah, basically Bush House was built on top of sleeves. So this whole the BBC was built on top built of on sleeves. sleeves. So this whole stretch really from there's Gladstone. There he is. This whole stretch from Gladstone all the way up to Charing Cross Road. Yep. It's kind of London's Boulevard Houseman, isn't it? It's the whole thing was just yeah, just crumped, just crumped. 
So he really is having to write this book from memory, isn't he? That the, the whole place changed. Amazing. Well, he talks in his author's intro, doesn't he, about having walked the streets, but he must have done that before all this was changed. Yeah. He's recalling a place that doesn't exist anymore. No, but perhaps he's pleased to see that London has finally been brought into order. Here he is, Gladstone, looking disapprovingly. 1898. This is it. This is where the pawn shops really would have been in the 1880s, 1890s. They wouldn't have been the Leicester Square, I'm telling you. But in front of the church as well. Well, at the back end. You go because this is the back entrance, isn't it? So is you, it? you go, you go, you get seen going in the church at the front, doing your formal stuff, and then you come out of the back and head off down the, the strand. The shops. Take her up the strand. That's a little bit of meta- meta- metaphorical theology for you there. Tailed it from the stew pots of the Strand. Yes, and we're now on the edges of the uh, of the city of London. Right, we're at Cannon, Cannon, Cannon Street Station. Cannon Street Station, which is now the only way you can get a train to Maze Hill, which is where Verloc and Stevie get the train to to uh, leave their device. So we'll we can then do a little reading out there of yeah. the poor demise of poor Stevie. Now, this is fiercely complicated because we're going to have to wear railways again. Oh, you, I, I noticed that you've, you've approached this one with a heavy heart. I know, I'm a bit exhausted. I can't... This is, what I'm amazed at is that you finally found a train story that bores even you. It's not that it bores me, it's just that I... <laughs> to do it properly, I'd have to basically write a book. It's so complicated. So, you've got the London to Greenwich line, which is the first line opened out of London. It runs from London Bridge to Greenwich. Very straightforward, bish bosh. One of the reasons it stopped at Greenwich is that the... London the Greenwich Observatory said you're not building a tunnel under here lads ah so you've got the you've got Greenwich in the way so yes. stop the Greenwich okay then the um, the North Kent Railway was built at Charing Cross um, which ran down towards Lewisham and yeah, out, out, out towards that way. North, North Kent way that way we know and that, that was in competition with the London Chatham and Dover Railway ah, which ran out of London Bridge the Druid line ran out of Black London and Blackfriars that's why if you get a train in North Kent it's incredibly confusing because there's lines going over each other right. and blah, blah, blah. Is this, so is this, is this bring back sort of childhood trauma about yeah, yeah. your choices of, your choices of train journey well, I, is this I, why you've become such a nutter about I, train time well things? I grew up in Sevenoaks and there's two ways into London from Sevenoaks right that must have been deeply quick, traumatic for the, you. There's the quick way. No, no, but there's a quick way to Charing Cross, which is, you know, on the old, I guess, on the old southeastern line to Dover. Right. And then there's the long-winded way through North Fantastic. Kent, which is Georgia. Anyway. So while the rest of us, when we go to the shrink, talk about our mothers and our alcohol dependency, yeah. you talk about train lines. Uh, the complexity of train lines. <laughs> Growing up... Well, the thing is, I grew up I grew up at a railway junction. Now I live at a railway junction at Hearn Hill. So it's not a coincidence. No, no. Lyle F is full of possibilities, I like to think it. Think it is. Um, my dad used to get the train to here from Seven Oaks when he worked, when he worked in the city. Oh, so, anyway, so this so, is about your father. This is about my father. So anyway, the reason for bringing up the two different railway lines, and this is where things get complicated, okay. is that in the book, Conrad specifies that Michaelis yes. is living at a station 
on the London Chatham and Dover line. He says that line, doesn't he? He explicitly states that. Yeah. Which means there's a whole. But that is not. You can't get to Maze Hill from the London Chatham and Dover line. So one of two possibilities presents itself. Either Conrad made a boo boo. Yeah. And actually, Michaelis lives on the the line that goes the um, the, the North Kent line. Yes. Which goes through Maze Hill. Yes. Uh, there's a little complexity about that which I'll come on to. God um, blimey. Or, literally, um, Verloc had to come into town and then go out of town again. Oh, you see, this is exactly the kind of thing where you want to go back in time and, and have you in a room where he's doing his PR for this book. So, you, are, are, any questions from the audience? I mentioned, yes, yes, exactly. Possibilities for villages on the London Chatham and Dover line. So he says explicitly... You've written this all out. It could be Bickley, St Mary's Cray, Sevenoaks Junction. That's for your place, isn't Ainsford, it? Ainsford. I quite like in Ainsford, actually, because it's quite a small place. Shoreham, Sevenoaks... Farningham, Mepham or Soul Street. I'm quite liking Seven Oaks Junction, as it was called. It's now Swanley. Swanley, the bypass. Swanley village. It, does, it also says in the book that Michaelis' house is a few miles away from the station. Which would that would be? Well, Swanley village would work. So I'm quite liking Swanley village. So if they, but if they came in from Swanley village, they would have had to come into London, to London Bridge, and then go to Charing Cross, and then, and then the out train again. out to um, Mays Hill. Do you know what? I think we think about this harder than Conrad does. I just do feel that sometimes well, we that, we, that, we, that, that we're doing a lot of work here. The only novelist I know who would bother to go back and look at the timetables yeah. in that kind of detail uh, about a time past saying, oh gosh, why didn't you make that? Would be you. <laughs> Suggestions for certain personages of the tale by the law abiding and rulers came from various sources, which perhaps here and now some reader may recognise. They are not very recognised, but I am not concerned here to legitimise any of those people, and even as to my general view of the moral reactions as between the criminal and the police. All I will venture to say is that it seems to me to be at least arguable. So he's trying to justify this book. It, it got a negative reaction. And now, in 1920, he's come back to it. And he's trying to say, A, maybe part of the haziness is the fact is that if I had made this entirely accurate, then it makes it look like I hang out with these people, and I don't. And I never did. But he's, <laughs> but, but he's also... Because one defence could I've be... I've never been drinking in the Strand. I have never been to a pawn shop in Soho. I do not... I completely made it up, and that is why the addresses don't exist. Yeah, yeah, the names yeah. are wrong, the dates are wrong. Which is not... Because... Because a more, a, a more modern response would be, it did happen. It does happen. I know, but what he's real. really saying is, I've never been to a I've never been shop. there. I don't remember. <laughs> I can't recall. <laughs> I particularly want my wife to understand, because I have never been to that. So there's the observatory, 100 yards down the hill from it towards Maze Hill towards Maze Hill it's going off to the left there in those trees there yeah just in there yeah boom Stevie in his opinion the two men have parted from each other within a hundred yards from the observatory walls alright so we've got to go a bit further up the hill then well, hundred yards from the observatory there. is it there hundred yards it's less than 100 yards to the observatory from here, I think. Just at the top of that, yeah. OK. So we're roughly in the right spot in Greenwich Park. Well, so uh, Chief Inspector Heat says, 
An old woman who spoke to the sergeant noticed a fair-haired fellow coming out of Mays Hill Station. So the fair-haired fellow is Stevie. Oh, poor Stevie. She noticed two men coming out of the station after the up train had gone on. Verloc and Stevie come up here. Are Stevie. you Verloc? And I'm Stevie. So, I don't know, what's, that, what's Verloc's accent? That's an interesting question. <laughs> he's French, isn't he? Well, no, he's got a British passport. He's lived in Paris. And he's called, and he's called Adolf. Oh, oh, how very confusing. Yeah, yeah. Is he so Alsace? He's going to sound like Arsene Wenger. He's going to either Arsene Wenger or. So um, can you do your Arsene or Rene, Wenger? Rene and Allo Allo. Can you do your Arsene Wenger impression? I didn't see it. <laughs> I didn't see anything. You describe it to me, I didn't see it. It's my Arsene Wenger impression. As a men's United supporter, <laughs> you were never going to do a good one of that, were you? So, oh, and no. then poor old Stevie drops the can. Right. And uh, then covers, and then he's, he drops the camera, he falls on top of it, doesn't he? So then he's he's completely blown to pieces. Because yeah. basically, then here he is, all of him I could see, fair, slight, slight enough. Look at that foot there. I picked up the legs first, one after another. It was that scattered, you didn't know where to begin. So he says he had been the first man on the spot after the explosion. He had seen something like a heavy flash of lightning in the fog. So there's fog in the park. Yeah. In spring. Yeah. At that time, he was standing at the door of the King William Street Lodge talking to the keeper. The concussion made him tingle all over. He ran between the trees towards the observatory. As fast as my legs would carry me, he repeated twice. Yeah. Right, this is quite specific. It is. This is very good. And the King William Lodge is down there, isn't it? Right. You used a shovel, he remarked. Yeah. Observing a sprinkling of small gravel, tiny brown bits of bark and particles of splintered wood as fine as needles. Had to in one place, said the stolid constable. I sent a keeper to fetch a spade. When he heard me scraping the ground with it, he leaned his forehead against a tree and was as sick as a dog. You can see why people were a little bit turned off by this in 1907, (laughs) don't you? It's good to come out here, though. I was slightly creeped out coming out of Mays Hill and walking up the hill, thinking, what if I did have a bomb strapped to me? I think if you're a fan of the book... Or had a can. The main thing I would the main two things I would go and look at if I was a fan of this book, a takeaway from this podcast, is the grill on Charing Cross Road where you look down to Little Compton Street. Yeah, I'd go there and I'd get the train to Mays Hill and walk into Grenfell. Yeah, because it's quite absurd coming out of London as well, just through that that area as well. Yeah, so it's a nice little route and it does. It's very Londony. Yeah, in many in the many layers of London that there have been since the eighteen seventies. Yeah. It's true. It's, it's good. It's very good for that. It's, it's, it's excellent for that. Yeah. And I've got a whole different vibe about the Strand that I had before. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I know a lot more about Lager than I did a couple of weeks ago. I don't believe you. I think you've always known quite a lot about I feel. I feel it's always been an instinctive knowledge. <laughs> Тот же курилослый спикифик Балклуб. Курилослый спикифик.